0: Reflections on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 8 All things are indeed clean, but it is wrong for a human being to eat something that creates a stumbling block for another. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to trip, to stumble, or to be weakened. Now, for Paul, faith is a gift. And the strength of one's faith is likewise a gift. And those whose faith is strong have no right to consider themselves either morally or religiously superior to those whose faith is weaker. Trying to behave as though one's faith were stronger than it is is not a foolproof way of strengthening it. It might even be counterproductive. Should the weak, seeing the strong and wanting to emulate them, try to copy the strong in faith, they might abandon precisely those rudimentary practices that have served to gradually strengthen faith in countless millions for hundreds of years. You see what I'm saying? That's what Paul is saying. Some are going to be strong in faith and some are going to be weak in faith. And there's and it's, a, it's a matter of grace. Nobody has any right to think them. If someone has, has a stronger faith than someone else, that's an absolute gift. And one of the sure signs that it is, in fact, stronger faith is that a person knows for sure that it didn't have anything to do with them. And knowing that, there's no reason to either look down on someone who might have weaker faith or to behave in such a way that might cause scandal to such a one. Here's what Nigrin says, which I think really opens the thing up a little bit on the question of Paul's talk of strong and weak faith. Nygren says, quote, it is true that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. When the strong, who knows this, exercises his freedom, this is nigran he does right, he acts in faith, but his weaker brother stands beside him. He looks on and is tempted by the example to do something for which his faith has not given him the inner stability yet. Each one is acting in, in keeping with the measure of faith given him. Now, notice this language. The, the one with weak faith is tempted by the example of the one strong in faith to do something for which his faith has not given him the inner stability yet. Mm-hmm. He, in other words, he's tempted to take a step that he's not prepared for. But the sacrificial order or the law provides a Stability. And Christian faith can only deprive a person of such stability to the degree that it is able to replace it with another form of stability. So the stability that comes from obedience to the law must be replaced by the stability that comes from faith in Christ. But in both the life of the person and the history of the world, the transition from one to the other is a gradual process. Haste not only makes waste, But it results in both, or can result in both psychological and historical breakdown. You know, we have this idea of Cain. We talked about Cain. He moves out of the sacrificial uh, arena too quickly and too cavalierly, and things break down and violence occurs. So for Paul, when an issue arises about which those who are weak and those who are strong in faith disagree... For Paul, it is up to those who are strong in faith to make the necessary accommodation to assure that those who are weak in faith will neither be scandalized nor tempted to do something about which they harbor lingering religious misgivings. Misgivings which might cause them to question the validity of the faith that they do have. That's all of Paul for today. I mean, that's all the quoting of Paul for today. Now, I want to try to draw out the implications of it. The generosity of the gospel revelation is that it does not deprive us of those sacrificial structures which we cannot live without. It only deprives us of those sacrificial structures which have become morally problematic for us. As soon as we have moral misgivings about these cultural and religious structures, then we have to do something about them. We have to reform them or whatever. And then the sacrificial system begins to break down all the more. I I mention that because just to give an example of this, I want to quote something that an Islamic scholar said about Islam and its effect on history. And I want to relate it to what Paul is saying here about uh, the care with which one moves from a... From a structured, uh, religious, legalistic world, which is the world of the old eon, into the new eon, and that if one moves too quickly, one is has committed the sin of Cain. In the, you could say, not this well, not not when I say the, commit the sin of Cain in that context, I'm not talking about murdering Abel, but I'm talking about cavalierly and unthinkingly and with inadequate preparation abandoning a sacrificial structure or or weakening it so that it had, that its its benefits no longer uh, avail so in any event here's what i want to share with you you know francis fukuyama wrote this thing called "The end of history which uh, came out exactly the wrong moment of course it was uh, it came out in that or it was written clearly in that brief little afterglow after the berlin wall fell and before all the catastrophe ensued there was this little window of opportunity so to speak for this this great hope to be uh expressed in fukuyama's book and it and i think it's it's I, i'm not trying to be cute about it it's it's a serious book but it celebrates everything you know so the history is going to end with plebiscites and uh, and, uh, you know, market economies and stuff like that. And so it didn't quite work out that way. But uh, there there was a response to that in the American Journal of Islamic Social Studies by a professor of humanities at the State University of New York, Professor Ali Mazri. And here's what he says, quote, If Islam in the 20th century has not always been the most fertile ground for democracy, it has also been less fertile for some of the greatest evils of this century, Nazism, fascism, communism, and genocide. These have emerged in societies that were Christian or Buddhist or Confucian. Muslims are often criticized for not producing the best, but they are not congratulated for having standards of human behavior that avert the worst. History must consult Islam about how to check the worst in human nature. From alcoholism to racism, materialism to Nazism, drug addiction to Leninism, of all the value systems of the world, Islam has been the most re- resistant to the ultimate destructive forces of the 20th century. End quote. Now, one, there are certain parts of this one could quibble with, uh, no doubt. But, in large measure, I think there's a valid point to be made here. And I would even sharpen the point, because when the professor says that uh, these these uh, atrocities were uh, uh, emerged in societies that were Christian, Buddhist, or Confucian, I would say yes, maybe, but the ideological basis for these strange perversions were all thoroughly Western. So that the communism that developed in China was a Western import, uh, and so on and so forth. In the East, the, con- the idea of communism, it blended, no doubt, with what was already there, but it was a Western one. So I would even sharpen the professor's point of the more. Well, what, are, what, what can we say about this? Well, I think what we can say is is that the Islamic world that is at least exists in, in the professor's mind's eye and probably exist in reality, is a world that is being held together by the structures of conventional law and religion, prohibition, rules, regulation, rituals, and so on. And a stratified system and a a system of, and not so much vertically stratified, but a system of of sharp differentiation, veils, etc., etc., and all that that represents, mm-hmm. and that those are making that world, that giving that world a certain stability. And what the <laughs> professor is noticing is that we in the West are celebrating the fact that we have all of this freedom, but look at what we're doing with it. In other words, we have moved out of that structure, the structure that religion and conventional culture provide, and we ha- and we're slipping into a world that is incredibly dangerous and chaotic and violent and destructive precisely because we aren't able to muster what Nigren called the inner stability that prevents that. If we take it upon ourselves to sweep away willy-nilly these structures that have, that have sustained us and stabilized the world... Because we know, and it's true, that they that they don't have ultimate validity, that they're not. This sounds, I know, it sounds terribly uh, elitist or something, but I think Paul is talking from a position of, of true insight. And so, if if you sweep those things away too quickly, you're not without providing the people who used to rely on them with some other form of inner stability. You're not doing anybody any favor, and you're not really preaching the gospel. Across the street from here, there's a flag store, and they have the in the window right now. They have the new South African flag, and the fellow that runs it, he's a nice fellow, and he has a great sense of humor. He has three signs in his window right now. One of them is "World's Newest Flag: South Africa," and advertising the new flag. And then he has two other signs. One is Marxist markdown on <laughs> all the old Marxist flags <laughs> that are at half price or something. And the other one is special sale on discontinued country. <laughs> so people used to look at the flag to see which way the wind's blowing. I, I look at the flag stores to see how the latest stage and the disintegration of the old eon is playing itself out. I want to turn to a story that was the cover story in Time magazine last week. But I'm going to start by quoting something that's in the middle of that story. It goes like this. For the past month, anyone watching the two unimaginable dramas playing out in Africa was left wondering which one was prophecy. We have moved from an era of pessimism, division, limited opportunity, and turmoil, declared Nelson Mandela, after he took his turn to vote an end to three centuries of racial hatred. We are starting a new era of hope, of reconciliation, of nation building. End quote. All across, the article continues, all across South Africa, people lined up to cast a ballot to escape from their past. All along Rwanda's borders and into the instant refugee camps, they lined up to escape from the future. So what I want to do is to go to the cover story on Rwanda and talk about it, but also to see implications in it that go far beyond just Rwanda. But sometimes we have to see things in their grimmest form in order to see intonations of them that are much more subtle and much closer to home. In essence, that's what the cross is. The cross is is a good, cold, focused look at how the world of the old eon holds itself together. So here's the story, and I want to just read through it and make a few comments as we go. The first paragraph of the story, it's by Nancy Gibbs. The first paragraph is this. There are no devils left in hell, the missionary said. They are all in Rwanda. That was on the cover of time, if you saw that cover. Actually, they brought hell with them. You have only to watch the rivers for proof. Normally, in this season, when the rains come to these lush valleys, the rivers swell with rich red soil. They are more swollen than ever this year. First come the corpses of men and older boys. Slain trying to protect their sisters and mothers. Then come the women and girls, flushed out from their hiding places and cut down. Last are the babies, who may bear no wounds. They are tossed alive into the water to drown on their own downstream. The bodies or pieces of them glide by for half an hour or so, the time it takes to wipe out a community carry the victims to the bank, and dump them in. Then the water turns clear for a while until men and older boys drift into view again, then women, then babies, reuniting in the shallows as the river becomes the grave. Aid workers have guessed that anywhere from a 100,000 to half a million, uh, this article was written two weeks ago, The the latter figure is now the one people are talking about. Anywhere from 100,000 to 500,000 Rwandans have died since the civil war between the Hutu and Tutsi reignited a month ago. We talk about these things as best we can using whatever idioms we have at hand. So we talk about it as as a civil war. That's a concept we know about, right? The bodies not rotting by the roads are buried in mass graves or floating down rivers far away from the, the arithmetic of history. With this latest tragedy and its long litany of tribal massacres, Rwanda joins Angola, Sri Lanka, Liberia, Bosnia, Nagorno-Karabakh in defining what barbarism means in the late 20th century and defined the rest of the world to try to do something about it. There, I find myself at a loss. I wanted to say some things about this, but... Relief workers and refugees agree that much of the most vicious killing was done not by the army, but by Hutu death squads called interhambui, which means those who attack together. These are young men in street clothes armed with anything from a screwdriver to a Uzi to a machete, a dull gleam in their eyes, and a whistle around the neck. If one spots a Tutsi family emerging from hiding and trying to flee. He blows his whistle and his comrades seal off any escape. If you look into their eyes, says says Daniel Bellamy of the UN High Commission for Refugees, who has encountered these killers at numerous roadblocks in the capital, there is something there that is not in the eyes of normal people. The comment has been made, which I want to underscore, that the scenes are very much like the scenes in Nazi Germany, people coming in and carrying out people just based on their ethnicity. And it's important to say that because the fact that this is in black Africa makes it possible for us to, even without realizing it, regard it as a racial thing of some kind and forget that a very terrible version of this happened in the heart of Europe 50 years ago, and there are and lingering signs of that same thing today. I was particularly touched by one part of this story, and again it reminded me of Paul. It goes like this. So far, despair has not triumphed completely. Relief workers are astonished by the cohesion and sense of community they see around them. In some cases, whole communities moved together and assembled themselves in camps. The elders rationed food supplies. Some priests are presiding over congregations a thousand strong. For those who have been witness to mayhem throughout the past four years of civil war, there were even words of relief. Compared with the life he had left behind, one refugee told the reporter from ABC, quote, here we are tasting the good life. Refugee camps, crowded. Refugee camps, little water, little food. Here he said, we are tasting the good life. And it reminded me of that thing of Paul says, when the measure of sin is full, grace overflows. It also reminded me of the stoning of Stephen where the moment the crowd became more furious, Stephen became the more filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the story goes on to say, if the Rwandan catastrophe was more than a simple tribal meltdown, it also showed signs of being the kind of conflict that scholars warn will haunt the world for decades to come. These wars are not started by statesmen or fought by armies or ended by treaties. Distinctions between soldiers and civilians become harder to make and less respected. There are no rules of engagement and no one reliable with whom to negotiate. Absent any discipline, warfare becomes an extension of crime by other means. You know, the, the old saw about uh, warfare as an extension of politics by other means. So he turned that around as Nancy Gibbs the author of this article turns that around. Warfare becomes an extension of crime by other means. The modern military model is the neighborhood gang, brothers and cousins, roaming, rule breaking, terrorizing. Now if you if you wonder why I wanted talk about lords of flies come summer. That's why. So, the article says, in concluding, Rwanda serves as a modern laboratory for anyone trying to figure out which factors will matter and which will not in the pursuit of peace and security. And I would say it's a modern laboratory as well for the anthropological crisis in which the whole world is now engulfed. The article goes on, It is a crucible full of explosives that nations watching from a comfortable distance have no idea how to handle. War itself is redefined when economic development fails to guarantee stability and above all when ethnic enemies use the outbreak of fighting to settle scores that can stretch back for centuries. Now, I want to say two things on that to follow up on that last comment. There's some truth in that, but the, the talk about settling scores that stretch back for centuries, and also the the, the comment about uh, the lack of stability, economic stability not being a stable enough for, you know. Remember, Nigran talks about the inner stability that comes from faith. And there is an external stability that comes from living in a structured, sacrificial, legalistic, conventional culture. There's a stability that comes from that. And you don't leave that with impunity without... Entering in another, into another form of stability. And I think that is precisely what Paul place underlies Paul's discussion about the law and living in Christ. Two forms of, of stability. And the question is, what's going to stabilize the world? And this idea that the world was going to be stabilized, the, the, it's essentially the materialist idea that we're going to stabilize it. By resort to some materialist solution. I mean, the worst, the worst form of that was Marxism, but it's everywhere. The west, the Western version, the Western market economy version, is just as naive as Marxism, based on the same premise. It's going to be stabilized because we're going to sort out the economics of it, and it'll be, and that'll be enough of an incentive. Now, I think, to be honest. Every, we need every bit of help we can get, and if there's some stability that comes from economics, uh, an economic uh, base that's healthy, I think that we should cheer that on. But we shouldn't think that that's going to stabilize it. And it, right, I mean, I'm I'm doing an exegesis on Time Magazine article, you know, and the, the, the text before us says, "A war is redefined when economic development fails to guarantee stability." Yeah and when ethnic enemies use the outbreak to settle old scores. Well, how about settling of old scores? The, the old scores are against dead people, you know. We have these old scores, we nurse them. Con- conventional cultures nurse these old scores in exactly the same way and for exactly the same reason that many primitive societies are so scrupulous in caring for the captured prisoners of war, who will eventually be the, be solemnly sacrificed on their altars. I've i shared with you some of this some of the anthropology on this. Prisoners of war are captured and they're treated with absolute care. They're they're nursed, you could say. They're nursed. they they're they're provided with the very best and prepared for this holy. Offering that they're going to be later on. I think that's I think that's an apt metaphor for what we do with old grudges. You see, we nurse them. We keep them aside for when they'll be useful. It's it's a little justifying myth. It's the seed of a justifying myth. You see that? It's the embryo of a justifying myth, and we put it on the shelf. And we nurse it for the for the moment when it might be useful. But to explain these events by saying, "Oh, well, these events are they're just they got a chance to settle these old scores," that's typical Westerners looking over the the abyss, trying to figure it out and applying existing concepts to it. It's it's, it's crazy. It's true. There's a truth to it. But it's it's simply using the available excuse for justifying a sacrificial frenzy. You'll think I'm it's getting worse and worse. In a way, it is. Elliot said, "You know, our sickness must grow worse." I want to go back to another story. Well, this is, this story is even has even more pathos in it. But it begins to uh, it begins to uh, underscore some deeper issues, for me at least, and I'll introduce it by going back to what Paul said, that very awkward thing that he said Uh, uh, earlier in the letter where he said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap coals of fire upon his head, and I would say you heap them upon his unrepentant head, if his head is unrepentant, uh, then he will... Suffer the moral misgiving all the more because you did not respond in time. This is what, this is behind Jesus' implied criticism of John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, Are you going to fish or cut bait? And Jesus said, Well, look, I'm out here just taking, I'm doing this, you know, I'm feeding the hungry and, and uh, so on and so forth. Nobody's been scandalized by me. Whereas you, you got right up in Herod's face and you ended up in prison. And when Herod finally ends your life, uh, it won't reveal what the cross will reveal. I'm just saying it that way, you see. Uh, but, uh, but, you see, Pilate was troubled. You see? Pilate was troubled when he said, I washed my hands of this. He was morally troubled. And that's where I think you can there's validity in when Paul says you he will heap uh coals of fire upon his head. You see what I mean? That one begins to have religious misgivings. I tell you that story of my friend in the sixties who refused to be drafted in the and the judge said to him um, in his trial, said, Well, it's now your turn to say something and my friend didn't stand up. And the judge said, Well look, you have to say something because if you're not if you don't say something I have to convict you and send you to jail and he's still in and the judge finally was pleading with him, look, you've got to at least stand up and say something because if you don't, I have to send you to jail. My friend stood up very slowly and said, well, we're all here to do what we have to do. Sat down. And then, you see, that was like heaping coals of fire upon yourself. And the judge physically squirmed on the bench, And the and the whole thing had been reversed. It was like the trial of Jesus before Pilate became the, tri- the trial of Pilate before Jesus it was just like that in that courtroom. And uh and that's that heaping coals of fire upon one he- one's head is not an is not a an act of viciousness, you see. Mm-hmm. But it's uh it, it is something that happens and it happens when you feed your enemy if he's hungry and giving something to drink to his thirsty and so on. Anyway, this has something to do with that. And it's a very grim story, grimmer even in certain respects than that Rwanda one if that's possible. And it's a review of, of a book by Mark Danner, The Massacre at El Mazote. At the, you may remember this. In El Salvador 1981 there was this terrible massacre of 767 People, many of them women and children, in this little village as part of that, the war in El Salvador. And I want to read three passages from the little review. The first refers to how an officer who played a key role in the massacre uh, uh, spoke to his soldiers the day after. Here's what he said. What we did yesterday and the day before, this is called war. This is what war is. War is hell. Now, again, you know, like a few minutes ago I said, we look and we see something, we say, oh, this is a civil war between the Tutsis and the Hutus. Because, oh, civil war, that's a concept. We know that one. Let's call it that. Let's and there's enough validity to that so that it, it has plausibility. And to some extent it's true. But is there you see, what's really going on? Do we really have a way of talking about this? And here this man is has this word. And he's a military man, and it's a it's the word, it's the it's the W word. <laughs> you see? It's the big one. It's the one that says this is okay. This is what we do. This is what we are trained for. This is what this uniform is about. This is what this flag is about. This is what this you see know what you said, I mean? It has it, it has sanction. And here he's trying to say, look, this word, remember this word, he's almost desperate, you see, I think. He's almost desperate to make sure we use this word for that. Because if if we don't, what word would we use? Murder when we get to Lord of the Flies, there's that little scene where Piggy and Ralph are on the beach. And Ralph says to Piggy, it was murder. And Piggy's just, don't use that word. It wasn't that. It was a mistake. But what happens if he doesn't make this word stick? You see what's going on? It's the, the wrestling that's going on between the revelation and the cover-up. The revelation of the truth and the cover-up. And the cover-up comes with words that have mythological power that can, the words are like that theme song that brings us back into this eon. You see, envelops us all the more in, in something Oh war war, yeah, I know war. And by the way, war is hell, remember? So so you know, this is no picnic. So he goes on. Now I don't want to hear that afterward, while you were out drinking, you're whining and complaining about this, about how terrible it was. I don't want to hear that. Because what we did yesterday, what we've been doing on this operation, this is war, gentlemen. This is what war is. But feel the struggle going on between the revelation and the cover-up. And then the author of this review says, in the face of Mr. Danny's account, you can only stare in dumbfounded horror. There is no one to blame except the gods of war. In other words, it's it's like the Rwandan situation. There is no one to blame except the gods of war. The ancients looked up from these smoking ruins and said uh, the gods have come down and set this madness in motion. So there's nobody to blame but the gods of war. The only relief for the reader comes strangely from a terrifying passage about a woman who found her own way to transcend the pain. I think that's not a very good way. He doesn't do justice to this, to, to what he's talking about it by expressing it that way. But nevertheless, there is something that's very powerful. And I read it as an act of remembrance for this anonymous woman who did no doubt what Paul was talking about in that verse where he says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Here's how the story goes. It's so remarkable, this story. This is really the crucifixion. I have no doubt that this is in fact the crucifixion. I I mean that literally. There was one in particular the soldiers talked about. A girl on La Cruz. A girl on La Cruz. La Cruz is the village, I suppose. Yeah. But on the cross. I thought it was strange that they didn't say in La Cruz sure. or in both in, both times he mentions La Cruz, La Cross, he says she was on La Cruz. There was one in particular that Soldiers talked about a girl on La Cruz, whom they had raped many times during the course of the afternoon. And through it all, while the other women of El Mozate had screamed and cried, this girl had sung hymns, strange evangelical songs. And she kept right on singing, too, even after they had done what they had done and shot her in the chest. She had lain there on La Cruz, with the blood flowing from her chest and had kept on singing, a bit weaker than before, but still singing. And the soldiers, stupefied, had watched and pointed. Then they had grown tired of the game and shot her again, and she sang still, and their wonder began to turn to fear. until finally they had unsheathed their machetes and hacked through her neck, and at last the singing had stopped. And then the reviewer says, throughout the remainder of this overwhelming book, you keep straining hopelessly to hear the sound of that singing. I have no doubt that is the crucifixion. It happens outside the city with nobody to watch, but word of it gets back. That's incredible. You see, Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all of humanity to myself. How Well, we'll make sure that doesn't happen. We'll run all your friends off and hang you outside the city. But word gets back. We'll shoot them all and put them in a mass grave and do it way out in the country and never breathe a word about it to anybody. And word will get back. That's incredible. And I you see, we're reading Time Magazine. This is we're not reading the Nagamati scroll. But there it is. On La Cruz, can you believe it? That's the Holy Spirit coming through. Gospel of John says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. There isn't enough darkness. It can get real dark, you know. We're, we're all privileged. We're, we all live in a world where we can flip on the lights when it gets dark. But some people don't. And even in that world, as dark as it can get, it never gets dark enough to quench the light as long as there's somebody there who can who can live in Christ all the way through. So Paul said in chapter 14, none of us live for himself and none of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong, we belong to, to the Lord. And lest we think, well, that doesn't have anything to do with us because we live in much more comfortable circumstances and so on. I wanted to share with you something that my friend Walter Wink recently wrote in Christian Century. He wrote a little meditation on a passage in John 15 about abiding. And the relevant verses are the ones where Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. If a man does not abide in me, this is, this really is the old eon and the new eon clashing again. If a man does not abide in me, he is cast, cast forth as a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This, I think, is a, is a, full of significance for those who think we can, we can resist the, the forces, the powers and principalities or the, or the pattern of this world, as call, Paul calls it, who think we can do it simply by being individual enough, autonomous individuals, to which the author of John's Gospel says, if a man does not abide in me, he, he is cast forth as a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. I don't know how to sort this out, you know, in terms of ecumenism. I really don't know how to sort it out. I don't even try anymore. Uh, but I, I feel very strongly that when all is said and done, when the smoke clears, John 15:6, which I just quoted to you, It'll still be there, and it will, and we'll be able to recognize the truth of it. Okay, so my, so Walter says, What does it mean to abide? And he said, I was thrown off by this text when I was young because I thought it had to do with me. I, th- I thought it was a personal admonishment, he said. But then he said, I realized later that Walter's a, a biblical exegete among other thing. He said, I realized later that the word is plural. You abide in me and I in you. It's plural. And he says, being plural, it provides a rich image of the body of Christ, of Christ seeking the body in the world. And then he says, I'd once heard the bit about bearing more fruit as a demand that I get cracking and strain hard to bear much fruit. Now I begin to hear the simple promise. Trust yourself to the water and let the current take you where you need to go. The water will both bear you up and accomplish God's purpose. And that, I think, is so much, so Pauline. In the course of this morning, we went from a discussion of Paul down into a kind of hell. Rwanda, the massacre at El Marzote, and so on. And now we come out of it, and we come out of it, it's, it's really the journey of the cross. The, the woman who died on la cruz, revealed something that one can even find, lo and behold, in its Time Magazine manifestation. And then by quoting Walter Wink's observation, I move it outside of that most dramatic setting and say, look, it doesn't have to be, this abiding in Christ doesn't have to be something, we don't have to go become martyrs. One can do it in whatever setting one's in. The work goes on in all settings. Virtually any occupation, lifestyle, life situation is is an occasion for it. And that's what Walter's reflection on abiding brings out. And now I want to move... Another, even another step further, I guess. And I want to read a poem by Seslav Milos. And I want to read it in the context of Paul's discussion of not being conformed to this world and his idea of living as a reconciler. When he, when he says, if you're weak in faith, if you don't condemn those who're strong in faith, and if you're strong in faith, don't do anything that will scandalize the weak in faith, and take care of each other, and so on and so forth. He's he's saying, be a reconciler, be reconciled one to another. And this poem by Milos has to do with reconciliation in a in a larger and more mysterious sense, I think. And it also has to do with two things that are dear to me because of my own experience and tradition, and that is to say with what you might call a sacramental consciousness and the communion of saints. Anyway, here's how this poem goes. We are not so badly off if we can admire Dutch paintings. Mm-hmm. For that means we shrug off what we have been told for a hundred, two hundred years. Though we lost much of our previous confidence, now we agree that those trees outside the window, which probably exist, only pretend to greenness and treeness, and that the language loses when it tries to cope with clusters of molecules. And yet this here, a jar, a tin plate, a half-peeled lemon walnuts, a loaf of bread, last. And so strongly, it is hard not to believe in their lastingness. And thus, abstract art is brought to shame. Even if we do not deserve any other. Therefore, I enter those landscapes under a cloudy sky from which a ray shoots out, and in the middle of dark plains a spot of brightness glows, or the shore with huts, boats, and on yellowish ice, tiny figures skating. All this is here eternally, just because once it was. Splendor, certainly incomprehensible, touches a cracked wall, a refuge heap, the floor of an inn, jerkins of the rustics, a broom, and two fish bleeding on a board. Rejoice. Give thanks. I raise my voice to join them in their choral singing amid their ruffles, collets, and silk skirts, One of them already who vanished long ago, and our song soared up like smoke from a censer. Now, what Milos has done is that he has seen the world mediated through the Dutch painting. And he has found that the mediation, he has found in the mediation something more alive and more more real. The title of his poem is Realism. But he's not talking about a a, a painting style. You okay. see. He has found in the mediation something more real than what we call the immediate. So the mediate is more real than the immediate. That's what Gabriel Marcel was talking about, no doubt when he said his version of being in Christ, which is to discover that which is more truly me than I am myself. The immediate is more real than the immediate. And then when one sees that, if Nilosh can give us a hint, if when one sees that, one rejoices. Rejoice, give thanks. I raised my voice to join them in their choral singing. And our song soared up like smoke from a censer. That seems like a long way away from that, uh, that saint who kept singing after the soldiers had brutalized herself. But it's the same song. It's the same song. I think, I think it's the same song. I despair of saying something that's conclusive or that, that wraps up yes. our, our work with Paul. I have no doubt that however inadequately or semi-adequately we might understand Paul's discussion of being in Christ, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me, or living in Christ, and so on. However inadequately we may understand that, I have no doubt that we, we as a species will gradually come to realize its profundity and its specificity. And we will have and and so we we should, as Paul starts out the gospel, the letter of Romans. Maybe we should take a key from Paul starting out the letter of Romans, where he says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel," and there's no reason to be so. I I mean, we're here because of it. It it has had its effect, and that that girl who sang that song at that in that terrible situation. She didn't sing it because she was doing her own thing, you know. She she's been touched by it. She had been caught up in it. And I think this is the thing, to go back to Neumann, this idea of not being caught up is absolutely right. We have to not be caught up in the madness that led to that poor girl's, uh, you know, torture and death. But, we ha- but in order to, be, the way not to get caught up into that madness is to get caught up in what she was caught up in. And I think that's really the alternative for us. And that doesn't mean we have to be caught up in it in a way that ends in something that terrible and tragic, obviously. But when Milos is writing this poem about what happened to him looking at, at, at a Dutch painting, uh, he's getting caught up in it, is what I think. He's getting caught up in another vision of our of, of reconciliation. And that's where that passage in John where he says you abide in the vine the branches abide in the vine or else they are cut off and are eventually thrown into the fire and I, that's very powerful you know we we will either get caught up in the madness of the of the soldiers that killed that poor girl or we'll get caught up in the in in the vision that she was caught up in and the world what's happening in the world is a contest between those two forms of contagion I don't have any doubt about that. This concludes Reflections on St. Paul's letter to the Romans. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org That's Cornerstone Forum, all one word, Dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.